You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Good morning. It's bright up here, isn't it? That's good, though. In the, in the winter, we need the sun. This will simulate sun for me today. Hey, so um, this morning, I thought I'd share a little bit of something about myself right off the bat. Uh, if you know me, uh, you, you may know this. I am easily charmed by uh, learning. And usually it's just odds and ends and stuff. Uh, oftentimes YouTube, um, which, you know, can be a bit of advice as well. Uh, there's always something out there on YouTube. But I, I, on seriousness, there's really some, some great material out there right now. And, and I came across something that I thought I might share this morning just uh, as a way of kind of introducing our scripture today. And, and you know, sometimes we encounter these things in the physical world out there um, that really lift up and magnify uh, the glory of God. Uh, I think it says in Romans uh, that uh, creation uh, really points us to God. Uh, and, and that's so true, so true when we look at uh, various uh, things out there that are being discovered uh, in science and psychology, uh, in, in all sorts of realms that are pointing us to God. So, so I came across this. This is from a professor, a Canadian professor of all people, uh, Jordan Peterson. Some of you may uh, have seen some of his videos on YouTube. And he references this study that was done with rats. So oftentimes you're watching cat videos, and this is, this is a rat video. Um, but uh, this study was really fascinating to me. Uh, and so they took these, these rats, as they're studying these rats, they took these juvenile rats, and they, they brought them uh, together th- like for a first meeting. You know? and, and before they brought them together, they, they made sure that they were separate, alone for a while. So these juvenile rats... They're kind of, kind of primed to play. Um, and, and much like, you know, human children, uh, juvenile rats love this rough-and-tumble play. So when two juvenile rats meet each other, they have this tendency to just kind of, you know, wrestle it out. And uh, whichever rat pins the other rat is sort of the dominant rat. And they found that if a rat is 10% larger, then it'll almost always win that first encounter. And it'll, it'll pin the rat. Kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, you know, like pinning my brother. And makes, makes me kind of reassess my relationship there a little bit. Um, in any case, uh, what they found then as they separated these rats and then brought them back together the next time in this little enclosure is that it was, it was the subordinate rat, the rat who was pinned, that was responsible for kind of initiating play again. And so the, the rat would come, uh, come over and, and you know, poke at the, the bigger rat and just kind of, hey, you want to play? You want to play? Uh, and so uh, then they'd wrestle again. And, and this would repeat. And, and what they found after time after time of introducing these rats together for play is that the bigger rat had to let the smaller rat win at least 30% of the time for the smaller rat to continue to initiate play. And that is the rule of reciprocity, a rule that we see uh, across the animal kingdom, 
uh, and that we also see in our human relationships as well. Um, and so we'll see a, a similar principle in our scripture here today, uh, in the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, and here the manager uses this rule of reciprocity um, to get something that he wants, um, but also it reflects in a social dynamic, a, a social convention of the culture at that time. Uh, so if you'd like to follow along uh, here this morning, uh, our passage is in Luke 16, uh, verse 1. I don't know what page that's in in the Pew Bible. 875, there we go. Hey, getting help from the crowd. I appreciate that. Uh, so this parable is only found in the Gospel of Luke, uh, and it contributes to the unique emphasis of Luke's Gospel. Um, so we'll see how this parable connects into other parts of Luke, um, and especially as Luke is interested in these relationships that coordinate uh, with our admittance into the kingdom of God. Uh, so the parable of the dishonest manager, it carries over a similar motif, actually, from the previous parable that we looked at, uh, the prodigal son. And uh, it's dealing with the same idea of wasting possessions. So previously we saw the prodigal son, and then today we'll really see the prodigal manager. Um, so please uh, stand if you're able. And we'll read Luke 16, verse 1, starting here. So he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I, aha, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do, I owe, how much do you owe my master? Uh, and, and he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he had said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do I owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. 
God Almighty, um, we pray that you would open and reveal your word to us here today. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would, you would give us hearts that are open to receive and be transformed by you. We pray that we would see you clearly and that we would go from here even today being inspired to greater faithfulness. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can sit down. All right, so let me say, as we dive in, um, there are some passages in the Bible that are very odd. Uh, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, we have this manager who seems like a shady guy from the beginning, uh, and he's getting fired. Uh, no, no wonder, given his actions. And then on the way out the door, he seemingly doubles down on this mishandling of the master's possessions. And he runs a clearance sale at the master's expense to garner favor for himself. And then when the rich man finds out about this, what's he do? He commends him, of all things, saying the manager acted shrewdly. As if he's saying, well, yeah, nice one. Yeah, you got me there. So is anyone else struck by the dissonance, this clash between morality and cunning? And instead, of all things of denouncing this man, Jesus instead makes him the example, saying that we too should make friends through dishonest wealth. <laughs> so how do we make sense of this, this version of Jesus's version of how to make friends and influence people. We see in many of Jesus's parables that he uses something unexpected uh, to teach us an important lesson. So when our morality is, is uh, struck by this clash between shrewdness and, and dishonesty, um, we, we're left wondering. And so that I, I want to explore that this morning. And in an attempt to resolve this dissonance, uh, I'll begin by setting, I think, in a very important cultural context, which I, I believe it will greatly improve our understanding here. And, and many theologians, way more qualified than I, have tackled this passage from various different perspectives. Uh, and let me just say this morning, I owe quite a bit to uh, a professor uh, David De Silva for sort of peeling back some of the cultural layers of this for me. And, and hopefully what I give you here today is enough of this cultural background to help us better make sense of this, this crazy story. And, and in so doing, I hope that we'll have a greater appreciation for the relationship that uh, Jesus implies between us and God in this picture of the parable of the prodigal manager. All right, so throughout Luke's uh, gospel, we see references to this first century social construct of patronage. And patronage is a social system that depends on reciprocity. Um, patronage was a pillar of the Roman society. Um, it described a distinctive relationship between patrons on one hand and their clients on the other. And in, and in fact, Luke actually starts his gospel by honoring his likely patron, uh, Theophilus, 
who was writing, he, he was writing this orderly gospel too. He mentions it in the first chapter. Um, and patronage was hierarchical, uh, but the obligations were all tr also mutual. And clients offered services to patrons. However, they also did so with an understanding that the patron would reciprocate through beneficence. And we need to understand that, that this is primarily a relationship uh, between the patron and the client, that it's, it's very relational. I think we tend to think of things as transactional in our society, uh, as, as a capitalistic society, but, but keep in mind, this is not strictly transactional. Uh, patrons granted favor on their, uh, their, pat on their clients, uh, and it was from their status that they, they distributed this uh, indispensable favor. Uh, so as we come to our parable, we see that the rich man um, is, is this patron. Uh, and we also see that the manager is seeking uh, patronage uh, of the clients whom he is canceling their debts. Uh, because canceling debt was something that you know, patrons would do. It was something they would do that would be considered beneficent. Uh, and it, in this case, by the manager, would garner some favor uh, with those that he's canceling the debt of. Uh, take, for example, one of Jesus' other parables, uh, that of the unforgiving servant. Uh, in that parable, the servant owned a, a ma he owed a massive sum of money to his, mana uh, his uh, manager, the rich man that he was serving. And the servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled that debt, and he let him go. And then that wicked servant fails to show the same beneficence to some who owe him lesser sums of money. And we find this in Matthew 18. And the master in that story punishes the servant for his lack of beneficence. So... The expectation is that when debts are canceled, uh, that gratitude would be returned. So we have this dishonest manager on one side, who, who is, he's really probably a financial steward, uh, and he's been squandering his patron's wealth. And at last, then we see the rich man who discovers this, and he, and he hears from his friends and associates and while there don't seem to be any formal charges, there's definitely um, a falling out of favor. Uh, and the patron says, you need to get your books together. Uh, you're getting kicked out. And so the manager is very much, he's, he's presented with this crisis. Uh, and, and in this crisis, he has this aha moment. And he says, aha, I know what I'll do. And rather than... Uh, Engaging in some niggling questions about morality, uh, he takes this resolute action in the face of crisis. And he quickly tells each debtor to reduce their bills by you know, fairly proportional amounts, actually, we see. Uh, but they are large amounts. It's not as if this probably isn't going to go unrecognized. Because the rich uh, patron is a very rich man indeed. He's able to, you know, give these people pretty substantial reductions. And uh, it would make them, uh, in many ways, you know, uh, kind of beholden to that beneficence. And so we have to wonder, in the midst of this, is this manager really thinking that he's going to get away with it, that, you know, he's not going to be found out? Um, 
and in any case, he doesn't. The manager finds out. Um, and, and, and in the midst of this, we have to wonder, like, what are the client debtors thinking of? Um, you know, are, are they kind of going along with it, and are, are they just as dishonest as the manager? Are they seeing it like, oh, hey, this is a great deal. You know, I can't pass this up. Uh, or, or do they not really know that the manager is losing his job? Um, it could be that he th- they, they think he's acting on behalf of the creditor, uh, of their patron. Uh, and they, they see the rich man as beneficent in all of this. And they may claim ignorance. Maybe, maybe that's it. They'll just say, oh, well, we thought he was acting on your behalf. In any case, um, we see that they're caught up in this scam. Um, and, and if in the end they find out that, well, the manager has done this, you know, without the master's approval, if, if, if that's the case, and if they knew that during, that they're definitely caught up in this scam. And, and so then we come to the rich patron, and he finds out what's happened. Um, and we say he he may actually be in a bit of a bind here. Uh, He can't really recoup his losses due to the patron-client relationship. The rich man may be seen as reneging on the manager's actions without without harming his relationship with the debtors. Um, He he may kind of have to go along with this. And he can't really punish the manager either uh, because if he was uh, to punish the manager, and, and the, the client debtors, thinking that, that this was a beneficent action, may, may actually take the manager in as if he's a victim. So instead, I think that the manager has done well by forgiving the debts of the clients and enabling his rich patron to be hailed as the beneficent benefactor. And perhaps rather than wasting the patron's wealth, he's finally made good use of that wealth as a steward of it for both him and his patron. He's finally given him some uh, beneficence. We don't really know how this ends, only that the rich man says, well, that was clever, and that was shrewd. And in Jesus' words, we may also see that this aligns with his statement, forgive, and you will also be forgiven. So as we turn now to Jesus' application, starting in verse 8, we can see how the manager acted shrewdly. And Jesus moves on to applying the parable to two groups of people, the sons of this world on the one hand, and then contrasting that with the sons of light. And we have the unrighteous contrasted with the righteous. And Jesus says that the unrighteous are shrewder than the righteous. So in other words, the unrighteous know better how to use their wealth in this world than the, unrighteous, than the righteous and how to make accommodations for themselves. And, and maybe that's fine because the, the righteous should be more shrewd about how they handle their accommodations in the next world. So in verse 9, Jesus says to make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, and, and that's key, that way we may receive, be received into eternal dwellings. See, the shrewdness of this world eventually fails. Give it 80 or 90 years, 
whatever you've stored up for yourself in this world will eventually fail. But the shrewdness that opens up eternal dwellings, that will last for millions and millions of years. The phrase, when it fails, also recalls Jesus' statement in Luke 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that will not grow old and with treasure in heaven that does not fail. This idea of uh, expending wealth on the lesser ones is an interesting twist on that traditional structure of patronage. Like the manager who used, who used this wealth to cancel the debt of the clients and garner their favor, so also we are to use wealth so that it's um, on the least of these. In Luke 9:48, Jesus says, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. Jesus is making the little ones, the non-elites, the brokers of Jesus' patronage. And he goes on to say, anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my Father who sent me. Jesus is turning the world of patronage on its head, concluding with, whoever is the least of you is the greatest. Like the manager using wealth that's not his, we also have no claim to the things of this world but we are stewards of them as they are gifts from God. And we broker God's favor when we give those gifts to others as patronage to those who are indebted to God. So whose favor is it that we seek but God? We begin to see how Jesus envisions God as the great patron who grants favor to those who seek God's patronage. This idea of granting favor is understood by Luke, and in fact, the pregnancy er uh, narratives that begin Luke uh, with Mary and Elizabeth, uh, they abound with such phrases as, you have found favor with God. And the songs in these nar narratives, they resound with God's gratitude and favor. Um, in fact, it's arguable that Luke begins the gospel with the counterclaim that it's not Emperor Augustus who is the patron of the world, as he claimed to be. Rather, it's the Messiah. Luke writes in chapter 2, heralding the Messiah, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of Bethlehem, a Savior is born to you. Glory to God on the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus will be the one who mediates the favor of God. And Luke transcribes this claim from Jesus in uh, Luke 10, 22, saying, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, here it's, it's Jesus that's brokering the favor and authority of God. So as such, it is Jesus who is the patron that we seek. So our passage today comes from this section of scripture where Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Um, and this parable also has this eschatological endpoint uh, where the manager is facing this coming judgment, this encounter with the uh, rich man. And Jesus is urging his disciples towards faithfulness 
in that looming crisis. And it's amazing. We, you know, we all go about our daily lives knowing full well that the end is coming. And, and really what's amazing is not so much that, um, that, you know, really what's amazing is that we just operate so casually in the light of that without, you know, fear really of that coming day. You know, I guess as the saying goes, comforting lies attract more people than inconvenient truths. So I work in the hospital as a, as a chaplain. On a regular basis, I encounter people who are coming to the end of life and are seeing and engaging in a very personal way their own mortality. And I've noticed um, that as I think about my own or mortality, um, in encounters with these people that, that I think then a lot about, you know, the meaning of life at the end of life, the meaning of life beyond this life. Uh, and, and as I think about that, um, and, and I encounter sometimes discouragements in this life, in, in the present moment, I'm reminded of, of those eternal dwellings. I'm reminded that um, the way my life looks today is not going to be the way it always looks. That in five or ten years from now, things may be very different. And, and when maybe those crises hit, whenever they do, as they do for all of us, that right now I can develop this pattern of faithfulness and faithful reflection on the one from whom all my blessings flow. Rather than focusing on the blessings themselves. And what I can tell you from observation in these encounters is that those who have spiritual fitness through a solid relationship with Jesus are much better equipped for that crisis. And I believe that there's no greater comfort in times of crisis than to know that God's presence is with us and that he is faithful with us. To know that God has said to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. God's faithfulness is the perfect model to us in a broken world where people are so often unfaithful. When enough people give in to their immediate desires instead of faithfully seeking after the Lord, we see that society is pathologized. See, our behaviors have this ripple effect the way we impact others impacts the next set of relationships and the next set of relationships. So through faithfulness, we can really make this rippling effect into the world around us and improve the lives of those around us. So may, may we be a blessing to others. And, I prayerfully, uh, and in prayerfully seeking God, um, be faithful stewards. In Luke 12, Jesus said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food in their proper time? And I ask, will it be you? Will you be able in faithfulness to give to others what it is that God has given to you? God has entrusted each of us with a portion that will be and needs to be shared with the world. Yeah, I was, I was looking at this passage and thinking about how um, God was revealing to me a kind of a new perspective on money. Um, 
I was driving to work, and, and I was listening to this podcast, and uh, they described money this way, that, that when put in its proper place, money really is a social contract, a store of one's efforts today as we contribute to the social system based on this promise that later that social system will pay us back for that effort. So to serve money as an object is totally detached from the social construct. To use money to serve God allows us to engage in that social contract. Jesus says that where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. It's possible that the manager could have been, you know, this penny-pinching Scrooge and still been wasting his master's possessions. He could have thought that his security was in the fatness of his accounts. And in fact, the money would have only had value as a social contract, for that is money. The master really needed the manager to invest in the master's status and his reputation as a benefactor for the people. And, I, and so I'm led to this question, uh, are we wasting something that's been given to us? Um, are, are, maybe, it's, maybe it's something other than money. Maybe, maybe we're wasting time and opportunities. God gives to us all generously. To that, I'm, I'm very, very positive. And even as we make requests of him, he is giving to us so that we can then give back to others. You know, I think a lot of us here have uh, run into and, and engaged Dave Ramsey's program. And, and the last step of that program is all about giving back. Um, th- that's the best step to that program. Uh, It's not about building for yourself. It's really about engaging that social contract and finally being able to truly be freed to give back. Patronage also teaches us something about faithfulness. In the ancient world, uh, to be disloyal to a patron was considered one of the highest forms of dishonor. And that's why the prodigal son drew such ire from his brother. And why it's so surprising that the father receives him back. He had committed this grave dishonor, but the father values his relationship with the son more than the money. And so I, I wonder if we're having trouble receiving someone back into our lives, it may be that we're valuing the wrong things. And similarly, the prodigal manager had dishonored his patron. And he would have been relegated to digging ditches, not because he didn't have a marketable skill that would have secured him a job as a manager. The problem would have always been his relationship with his patron. And that's it. Patronage is all about the relationship. And for a Christian, as we are, it's about avoiding the trap of being concerned about what men and women think of you and having first that concern about the glory of God. 
as American Christians, we often, I think, cheapen grace as we live kind of however suits us. And we lost sight, I think, quite a long time ago about how it is to be disgraceful, to dishonor our patron. When we're tempted to be unfaithful, um, there's something amiss in our relationship with God. And we need to remember that loyalty really is paramount. Faithfulness includes a struggle to maintain that relationship. And recently I was reminded that uh, the name Israel describes one who is in that struggle, in that wrestle with God. And God invites us into that relationship where we can wrestle with him through things. And, and I think this parable, this parable shows that. This, this manager and the, his rich patron's relationship, it, it was a little bit of a wrestle. Um, and, and we see that. These people that have served God through the ages that um, don't have perfect lives, they've, they've done these really kind of screwed up things. You know, Abraham comes to mind and, and all of his shenanigans. And, and, and really, they, they still they still in the end are faithful to God. Abraham, of all people, uh, a faithful man of God. So here in Jesus' application on faithfulness, um, he clearly indicates that we build faithfulness into our lives over time. That when we're faithful with small things, then it builds to being faithful with big things. It's a spiritual discipline. And doing the little things well gives us practice to do the bigger things later in life. Or maybe next week. You never know when those bigger things will come along. And it's the greater things that, uh, that Jesus has in mind that he calls for us to be faithful in unto true riches. Really, money isn't even the primary focus here. A faithful person persists even when success seems far from us. Jesus' parable upends our success-oriented culture with a model that encourages towards faithfulness in the face of failure. Dale Carnegie said it this way, Most of the important things in the world have been accomplished by people who have kept on trying when there is no hope at all. Faithfulness is not synonymous with worldly success. A success-driven world often drives us to accomplish goals, detached sometimes from morality. And faithfulness leans us into this eternal reality that inspires us towards more faithfulness. Sometimes when I'm grieved by the world around me and struggling to see the, the fruits of faithfulness in my life, I see this sort of future vision of the glory of God and what we will experience together there. In this vision, I, I see uh, a kind of a giant amphitheater, um, something bigger than any stadium you've been in, bigger than the shoe by far. So big that, you know, as you look across, you can kind of barely even see one side to the other. Um, and, and I'm walking along with with you in that procession of the saints that Paul talks about. And we're walking into this giant amphitheater and, and the trumpets are sounding 
and, and we finally made it. And, and there's this celebration that's occurring. Uh, like, like the Olympians, you know, walking into uh, the opening ceremony. Here we are, finally, the victors. And, and Jesus Christ is there. And he is reminding us that he has made us faithful in all things. That he has made us faithful in kindness. That he has made us faithful when we are hurt. That he has made us faithful to our spouses. And that he has made us faithful to sick family. That he has made us faithful in abundance. And he has made us faithful to endure hardship. That he has made us faithful when we're honored. uh, And he has made us faithful when we are disgraced. He has made us faithful to hope. And he has made us faithful to love. And he has made us faithful even unto death. For we are made faithful in Christ. And Christ will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, we thankful, we are so thankful for your faithfulness to us. We need you. We need your, your model of faithfulness for us. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit power to enable us to be faithful. And we need that fervor and desire to be faithful to you uh, as our patron, who is, who is generous to us, who desires to show us our great, great favor. We know you desire that. We know, God, that you desire to give us all good things. And we pray here uh, this morning that you would uh, empower us for your faithfulness.